Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm pleased to welcome to the programme Reverend Israel Olawole Olofinjana, and I'm going to punt to you straight away, Reverend Israel. How is that actually pronounced? Um, Israel Olawole Olofinjana. <laughs> I'm not sure I could say that. <laughs> I'd have to practice that. Um, who is an ordained Baptist minister and pastor of Woolwich Central Baptist Church, a multi-ethnic inner city church in South East London, for a discussion on his provocative 2015 book, Partnership in Mission, a black majority church perspective on mission and church unity, published by Instant Apostle. Israel Olivinjana comes from a Nigerian Pentecostal background. He holds a Master's in Theology from Carolina University of Theology. He is many times published academically, is a member of the editorial board of Missio Africanus, an online journal for uh, African missiology in Britain, and he speaks and teaches in many varied venues across the UK on subjects of reverse mission, African Christianity, and black majority churches. Reverend Oliver Njana, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us today on The Mind Renewed. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Julian, uh, for this opportunity. Well, thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak with us. So we're going to be chatting today, as I say, around the subjects contained in your latest book, Partnership in Mission, which I say is a, I'm going to call it a provocative little book. And I say that because although there were many things in it that I found very stimulating in terms of the concept of reverse mission, which we'll certainly get into in a moment, there were other things that raised questions in my mind about which we might uh, disagree at times. But that'll be interesting because that's good, isn't it? If we all agree on everything all the time, then life would be very, very boring. Anyway, we'll see how things go. Um, But first, let's hear a little bit more about you, Israel. You come from Nigeria originally, and you are ordained into the Baptist ministry. You clearly have many responsibilities in church and community life. So how did you get to be doing what you are doing now from your beginnings back in Nigeria? Yes, as mentioned, I come from a Pentecostal background and was actively involved in church. became a Christian at the age of 17. And ever since then, I kind of felt a strong call into ministry. So no long after that, I went into a Bible college. But I've always had this passion for research. So while I was at university in Nigeria, you know, I was studying sort of church history and biblical studies, particularly African Christianity. Uh, so while in Nigeria, I started some research, looking at Pentecostalism in Nigeria. Uh, coming here, part of it was to plant a Pentecostal church, but also to further my theological education. On getting here, they didn't plant the church because I felt planting it will be limiting just to one particular culture. So I felt to do something different. So that's how I ended up in the Baptist denomination. And it's been exciting working with different cultures and ethnicity. It brings its own challenges, but I've sort of moved across different denominations and worked in different contexts. So that's just a little bit of my background. Sure. I'm interested initially in what you said, that you became a Christian around the age of 17. Did you have a Christian upbringing or did you come newly to Christianity? No, I was born into a Christian family, but I went to church with my mom, but that was more of a duty rather than choice. You know, coming from a Nigerian background, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a choice when it comes to church when you're young. Sure. But at 17, I made my own decision to follow Christ. So it wasn't, Christianity didn't just become my mom's religion, it's now my own. Mm. Uh, But obviously, the seeds that my mom sowed became fruitful, praying for me and praying that God would use me one day and things like that. So, so, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what you say there actually echoes with me because I was, you know, sort of self-styled, immature atheist in my uh, teenage years. But you know, I had been brought up in the Methodist Church, and it was my parents' religion kind of thing. And um, I became a Christian around the age of nineteen, and so um, I connect with what you're saying there immediately. Um, and you say that you came to the UK to minister. Is there any any particular reason why you chose? the UK rather than say, I mean, you did do some academic work in the US, didn't you? Yeah, I think UK because I had family connections here and the Bible college I was looking into was here in the UK. And also I think what people might not know, UK is increasingly being seen by a lot of Africans as a mission field. 
Whereas in time past, people would talk about, let's go to Africa or Asia because that's the mission field. But now I think a lot of people are saying they need to come to UK to share the gospel yes. because it's become a mission field. Yes, absolutely. And of course, that's going to connect with this notion of reverse mission, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. A fascinating idea. And of course, yes, we are living these days here in the UK in increasingly barren spiritual landscape. So it is indeed in need of the gospel. So let's turn to your book then, which, as I say, you call Partnership in Mission. But actually, it's the subtitle which gives us more of an idea of what the book is about, because you call it a black majority church perspective on mission and church unity. So you there have three interconnected things, black majority churches, mission, and church unity. And you organize the book accordingly into three chapters. But before we get on to those three chapters specifically, could you give us a kind of overview what the main purpose of your book is? This book comes at the back of the previous books I've published on African Christianity or black majority churches in the UK. One of the subjects I have not really explored until now was the issue of partnership or how different churches can work together. It's not been explored very well. People have written about it, but I think most of the books you will find on ecumenism are written from a Western perspective, white Western perspective, if I may say, or white theological perspective, which oftentimes is used as a benchmark to measure other forms of Christianity. It is almost assumed that is the norm. And so I was trying to look at what mission and church unity look like from a black majority church angle. Good. So that invites us into perhaps a different perspective for perhaps the majority of people listening to this program. Okay, so let's look at this first chapter, which concentrates on the black majority churches, as you say, especially in London, because that's uh, your experience. What do you mean by black majority churches? I mean, it seems obvious, but it isn't as obvious as that, is it? No. <laughs> the first problem is defining a church in racial terms. These churches have been described black-led churches, black-majority churches. And I must say that there's a lot of people within these churches who will not accept these terms. So I think I have to put that out first. So while we would describe the Baptist church, for example, based on their theological standpoint, or say the Methodist, and then when it comes to churches from African and Caribbean, labor them black. So some people see it as very problematic. Another issue is the fact that when you say something like black majority churches, it doesn't give you the nuances that exist within these churches because we're not just talking of one denomination here. We are talking of a huge section of the church in the UK, which will include Baptist churches, which will include Anglican churches because there are definitely so-called black majority churches within the Anglican Baptist what you might call historic churches. Also within that, you have what you might call African instituted churches. You have Pentecostal churches. And so there's a variety of church tradition within what we call black majority churches. Another layer of meaning that people might not see, these churches are actually multi-ethnic in some respects. Uh, so the church that I lead, from an outsider's perspective, they will call us a black majority churches because the majority of people that attend are black or from African and Caribbean. But what that does not tell you is that there are about 16 different nationalities represented in our church from age 0 to 92, people coming from different parts of Africa, from different parts of the Caribbean. Oftentimes people see Africa as a country, but it's a continent which is bigger than Europe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's really quite a complex situation. That came out in your book that it's very easy to, to look at it. Oh, black majority churches, we know what that means. Yeah. But actually it presents all sorts of difficulties in understanding what a congregation might be. And of course, lots of pastoral difficulties, I'm quite sure. However, in your book, you do draw a distinction between black majority churches and historic churches. Now, we, we need to work with a couple of definitions there. So could you give us brief definitions of both just so that we can have this conversation? Sure. For the sake of clarity, what I call historic churches will be sort of Western churches that have possibly a longer history. So an example would be the Catholic Church, Church of England, Baptists, Methodists, uh, whereas I was working with the understanding that black majority churches come in mainly from Pentecostal background, although not exclusively, and that they are newer compared to historic churches who would trace their roots back to the Reformation 
and to the apostolic procession if you are Catholic. So that was what I was working with. So I wasn't including in that Baptist churches that are black majority churches or Anglican churches that are black majority churches. Okay. Um, so as long as we keep those nuances in the back of our minds, that it's not as straightforward as we might think, we can work with those basic definitions. Now, you mentioned there the history of the black majority churches being very important. Um, you spend quite a bit of time talking about that. Could you tell us something of the history of these churches? How did there come to be such churches in the UK? I think, again, there is an assumption that this church started in the 1940s with the Empire Windrush bringing Caribbean people to come to the UK to build the country after the devastation of the Second World War. While obviously the majority of those churches started around the 1940s, actually their history goes way back beyond that. And one of the first Pentecostal churches that started is one that started in Southeast London in 1906 by a Ghanaian missionary who came from Ghana to start a church in Peckham. Now, the church later affiliated with Assemblies of God, so the history was a bit shrouded. And there was another one that started, obviously, this was not in London, but outside. There was another church started by a Nigerian in 1931 in Liverpool. But then from the 40s, you have the Caribbean. Let me just go back for a second there. So you say, actually, there was this, um, I think it was the Sumner Road Chapel in London that was founded in 1906. Is this the guy, uh, Reverend Brem Wilson? Yes. Uh And there was, I don't know whether it was around the same kind of time, there was somebody who talked about Dr. Harold Moody. It wasn't a church. I think it was some sort of uh, a league, a league of coloured peoples. Was that the same sort of time? Yes. Dr. Harold Moody came from Jamaica to study medicine. And after that, he wanted to practice as a general doctor, but opportunities were not open. So he started the League of Colour People in 1931 in London to help a lot of BME people, black, minority, ethnic. So he didn't start a church. He started what we might refer to today as a parachurch organization, helping people who were marginalized, speaking on their behalf and working with different churches. And so these are examples of people who were operating within the black majority church, who were pioneers. These are stories that a lot of people don't mm. know about. <laughs> no, 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 indeed. And uh, you said this is really quite early, isn't it? So this is the turn of the century, whereas we normally think about what you were just about to talk about, of course, of the Windrush generation, the 1940s and the 1950s, and this invitation from the UK to say, come from the Caribbean and help rebuild our war-torn country. And we normally think of that, of course. Um, and one thing that interests me is... You talk about a kind of culture of rejection. People came to this country and they didn't find it very easy to be assimilated into the Christian culture over here. I'm just wondering, if was there a difference between people's experience in the 1940s and 50s and people's experience at the turn of the century? Was there a greater acceptance back then or, or was it the same kind of problem? I think it was similar kind of problem, but I suppose what made a distinction with the migration of the 1940s was possibly almost a mass rejection in some sense. I think when a lot of people came from the Caribbean, they came under the assumption that they were British citizens. I mean, they were coming from Commonwealth countries. So when they came with the understanding that they are as British as anything, you know, they were yeah. they saw themselves as loyal to the Queen and things like that. They'd be welcomed with open arms kind of thing. Yeah, that was the expectation, mm. especially considering that they were invited, and I think we have to stress that, they were mm. invited to come and help. And so when they came, there was a lot of rejection. Many of them couldn't find houses. Landlords and landladies didn't want them renting with them or they will show them another place where they should go, or people will put up the rent up. So there were so many things they had to cope with. Job was very difficult to find for some of them. And again, church was a place. I've had so many people told me that when I came, the minister in a particular church, we shake everybody's hands, but we didn't shake my hand. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So there was lots of these things going on that I think it's important to mention it. It wasn't a very easy time. And of course, that fed into the felt necessity to create independent black majority churches, therefore. Yes, because I suppose if society is not catering for your needs and the church as well is complicit in this to some extent, then surely you have to find ways to meet the needs. And so some of these churches started as a result of that. I mean, a lot of people were disillusioned. Uh, A lot of people lost their faith. 
because yeah. it, well, this is supposed to be a Christian country, you know, part of presumption, but yeah. being treated this way <laughs> was the whole point of having faith. So a lot of people were disillusioned, and so the churches that started then were missional in terms of looking after the people who were disillusioned. But another thing that needs to be mentioned is that some of them that came wanted to be loyal to their churches back home. Mm. So if you were worshipping in the New Testament Church of God in Jamaica, you naturally want to find that church here. So there was loyalty to their church tradition. Some of them experiencing white British churches, it was very different from the kind of Christianity they practiced. So mm. the kind of Christianity they found in some of these churches found it a bit cold. <laughs> <laughs> Why are these people not moving? <laughs> yeah, it was like very yeah, cold and just maybe singing of hymns, not clapping hands, mm. not dancing, and the preaching was different. Mm. So some of them struggled with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just thinking of it from my own point of view, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a white British person and I'm brought up, you know, in the Methodist church. And sometimes I despair thinking, good heavens, you know, can't we sing a little bit more joyously than this? This is incredible. So, I mean, coming from a, a very different cultural background must have been really shocking. Yes, it was, especially for those who came from a Pentecostal background. Yeah. It was the same experience with the Africans that came in the 60s when they came as students and coming from a, a different expression of Christianity and they thought, wow, this is very cold. Yeah. <laughs> I experienced the same thing when I came in 2004. The first Baptist church I went to, I thought I was in a cemetery. It was very <laughs> different from what I was just used to. It was a cultural as well as theological sure. shock. So there was that reason. Yeah. And then last, there was the reason of mission. There were those who came because of mission and wanted to start churches, wanted to evangelize, wanted to do mission. And we mustn't forget that as well. So all these factors contributed to the start of black majority churches in the 40s. Yes. And of course, since then, there has been this explosion, has there not, in congregations around the UK, particularly in the cities that you mentioned. You, you list a lot of these uh, churches that have grown up in the decades since, and there's some fantastic names of some of these churches, not just like uh, Trinity Church or St. Peter's Church, but you have things like uh, the Celestial Church of Christ, Cherubim and Seraphim Church, and my favourite one, I think, is Born Again Christ Healing Church. What a fantastic name for a church. Could you Give us some idea of um, how these churches have grown up since those days in the 1940s and 50s. Yes, so the Caribbean migration was the first wave or the start of these churches. In the 60s, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of African students and diplomats came. And again, similar to the Caribbeans before them, experienced similar things and then started West African churches, which are called African instituted churches from around the 1960s. And then the 80s brought a fresh wave of new Pentecostal churches from Africa that started. And when these churches started, many of them were in community centers, schools, church buildings of historic churches. So they were not visible. But as they began to grow, people began to turn their attention to African and Caribbean churches from the late 80s. By the time we get to the 90s, the media were beginning to take interest in these churches because wherever you look, there is a black majority church or there is an African or Caribbean churches. And so today, these churches, there's no way you're going to write about British church history. Excluding them <laughs> will be excluding a great part of the British church landscape. Yes. Churches are definitely part of the British church now. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things you say there about the hiddenness of these churches in some cases, this reminds me of the fact that you know, we have visible churches closing down, you know, chapels here and there being turned into houses and the like. And it gives the impression to people that Christianity, oh, well, you know, that's something of the past. And yet I know there are congregations meeting in halls, old church halls, in school halls, in civic centers and the like. And of course, those are not seen. They don't have this presentation out onto the street so that people can know there's a congregation meeting. So what you say there, I, you know, that's uh, quite an important point to note, not just about the black majority churches, but yeah. You know, churches in general, these community churches and uh, Pentecostal churches are meeting in these sort of hidden ways, but they are there. Yeah. A scholar friend of mine did say there was, in London, in the 90s, there was church bombing. What he meant by that is each week there was a church opening here, there was another one opening there. Yeah. Churches are just everywhere. And it could be in somebody's living room, couldn't it, even? Yes. 
actually many of the African and Caribbean churches started in a lot of people's living rooms and then as they begin to grow, move into schools, community centers, some of them now have their own premises. Yeah, and of course some of them don't as well and they tend to hop around, don't they? I mean, we had a community church meeting in a school around this area and then it just seemed to disappear and I could give you the impression, oh, well, that church has closed down. But oh no, then I hear it's just moved to some other town nearby, you know, because of the different premises. So these things can sort of bounce around and difficult to keep tabs on where these things go sometimes. Yes, it is, because um, I think the problem of space is very much one that African and Caribbean churches struggle with because um, there's so many social and economic reasons. You know, when you're renting, prices are put up, you can't afford it, you have to move, or you found a bigger space somewhere than what you're worshipping in, then you move again. So there's so many factors why Mm. these things happen. Now, one of the things that you mention in the book, you highlight so-called prosperity theology that has blossomed really in black majority churches, but obviously elsewhere in the sort of Pentecostal charismatic scene. Um, and I'm going to make it absolutely clear, by the way, I'm not, I am not anti-Pentecostal. I, I feel very close to Pentecostals and charismatics because I do believe in the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I do have some concern about prosperity theology. And we've talked to people on this show uh, quite a bit about it. And we spoke to Ollie Anthony, who is very concerned about this and has been involved in uncovering fraud with respect to this scene. And, um, you know, you do express some concern about it in the book. What's your general attitude towards this prosperity theology? Uh, On the one hand, I embrace it because I understand where it's coming from and I understand the roots of it. On the other hand, I'm critical of it. But I think what a lot of people might not realize again is that there are different versions of prosperity. There are versions that have been abused and perverted that says, okay, you give 100 pounds, God can double it for you. God can increase it for you. We've seen cases as well where the leaders or the pastor or the pastor's family is prospering at the expense of the poor congregation. Yes. Uh, if you look at the roots of it from the United States, it's based on Western capitalism, which has three key components, materialism, consumerism, and individualism. And those three things feed into prosperity. So materialism is used as an index of spirituality. Indeed, and you mention one chapel, I think it's got a horrible name actually, called Winner's Chapel, I mean, I don't like that immediately because it implies that anybody who doesn't go to that chapel is a loser. I think that's not very nice, really. And um, it's a minister who, um, yes, actually, Nigerian, isn't he? And who's considered to be Nigeria's richest pastor with assets worth £93 million with private jets and a Rolls Royce. And presumably he would be receiving gifts from congregations. Some of those people would be quite poor. I mean, I... You know, I'd have to say I find that unpleasant, that whole scene. Yes, um, that's part of the problem with prosperity. In order to portray an image that it works, the exponents of it have to demonstrate it. So if you look at a pastor, is he prospering? How do we know? Does this thing actually work? And then the demonstration would be, of course it works. It's got this, it's got that. Is seen as okay. Well, it works for the pastor, so it can work for me. Mm. But it's not coming from the Bible, is it? As you said before, that's coming from these cultural drivers of materialism and consumerism, isn't it? Yes, especially when you look at the roots from United States. But on the other hand, when you look at the roots of prosperity gospel in Africa, it is slightly different from what you will find in United States. And I think again, uh-huh. there is an assumption that prosperity gospel started in United States, and that's it. I disagree. There is a prosperity gospel that is very African, and the roots of it is slightly different. Within the African traditional culture, there is an element of prosperity even before Christianity came that a lot of people might not know. Within the African culture, there are things that is seen as shows that someone is successful. Suspect when Christianity came, some of those elements were transferred into Christianity. But also in addition to that, when you look at some of the African nations that talk about prosperity, take Nigeria, for example. Nigeria has experienced a lot of economic recession and inflation since around the 1970s, which is around when prosperity gospel started in Nigeria. And so I suppose the question is this. What has God to say to people who are poor? What is the gospel to people who are poor, who have nothing? What are we supposed to say to them? that if you continue suffering in poverty, yeah, that's just the way God wants it, because when you suffer, you experience God more. 
I understand that. But I say to people, if you have never been poor before, you might not likely understand prosperity gospel. If we have experienced poverty, extreme poverty, we're not just talking of poverty, extreme one, I think you might understand poverty because I think oftentimes people who critique prosperity are coming from a middle class position where they have not really experienced struggle. You know, and I find that a bit hypocritical because, again, when you look at the church in Britain, it seems overtly middle class. We don't have many working class. Within the British church, there is prosperity. We might not proclaim it, maybe like the Africans are doing. We might not say it loud, but there is an inherent prosperity within the Western church. But we don't talk about it. Obviously, we are British. We don't talk about faith and finance. They should mix. Uh, so we are reserved about it, whereas Africans want to talk about money because it matters to them, uh, because of where they are coming from. And I think the socio-economic background, in terms of where Africans are coming from, uh, makes them to see some passages in the Bible, which Westerners might interpret differently. So how do you explain Abraham having a lot of success, having a lot of wealth? How do you explain David? It seems to me that even when you look at the theology in the Old Testament, he seems to be saying that if you follow God, then God will bless you. And so some of the exponents of prosperity pick their theology from the Old Testament. So that's sort of where African Pentecostals and prosperity gospel, that's sort of where they are coming from. doesn't mean that they are all right. We need to understand where they're coming from. Indeed, and I did see a distinction in your book between the kind of prosperity gospel that I tend to be criticising here sitting, where where I am looking at various famous people uh, saying, God will bless you if you give to this ministry, etc., and the kind of thing that you wrote about in the book, where you talk about a less individualistic concept of prosperity that is coming from the African culture, and you are saying in the book that perhaps the prosperity gospel should be transformed into this less individualistic understanding so that we have an understanding that God does actually wish to prosper people. He does wish the good of people, but not so much individual people, but working as a community, finding blessing in God's provision. So could you talk about that? Because that's quite an important distinction, isn't it? Yes. If we pick an African philosophy of Ubuntu, which simply says that I am because you are, which has the good of the community Mm. at heart rather than individualistic. So Ubuntu is saying I am because you are. It's not saying I think, therefore I am, which is a Western concept. I'm saying if we use Ubuntu as a lens to interpret prosperity and we will move from an individualistic and self-centered prosperity to one that will articulate that the reason why God is prospering you is so that you can be a channel of blessing to other people. So prospering will then not become just an end in itself. It will become a means to an end. So it means you become a channel through which God flows his resources so that you can use it to benefit the society and the community at large. Kind of what we see practiced in Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2 and chapter 4, where they had the communal prosperity. So the rich and everyone that was well able mm. brought things so that everyone can share what they have. It's that kind of prosperity that I'm seeing that where we should be heading, which a theologian called Commonwealth Prosperity, in the sense that the wealth will be common, that is, it will be to share, not just to hold it for ourselves. And I think that is important because I think when we move to that kind of prosperity, I think it's even possible to use it as a valuable source to help some of the needy people around the world uh, as a sort of... um, alternative to economic development in African and Caribbean nations. And I've seen certainly some churches in Africa doing this. In Nigeria, I've seen some churches who are taking this seriously and are using their prosperity to actually bless other people. But the problem is that this version of prosperity is not a popular one. It's a minority. <laughs> yes. So the one that people will see out there will be the one proclaimed by tele-evangelists saying, give this to my ministry and then you get that back. Uh, But the ones that are saying that, okay, God has prospered us, what then shall we do with it? Let's bless other people. It's not a popular one, but it's one that I think it's growing 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why it's not a, quite such a popular idea. I mean, obviously, say, you know, if you give to this particular ministry and you pray hard, God is going to give you a nice brand new shining car. I can see the attraction of that. But uh, in comparison with saying if we live as a community of Christians in the way that God wants us to live, then we will find our needs met. And out of having our needs met, we will be able to help other people. That's not quite so immediately appealing to one's sort of selfish desires, is it? No, it's one that is tapping into what Christ did emptying himself for the sake of others. Yes. But, you know, it's doable because I've seen people doing it. It just needs to be spread and understood. And then another part of prosperity is that prosperity also talks about health. It talks about deliverance. It talks about education. Mm-hmm. So some of these churches encourage people to follow their educational ambitions to become professionals and almost like saying being empowered, uh, which is something that is needed if you have been marginalized before. Uh, Sometimes prosperity helps people to move up, to move from maybe low self-esteem to becoming empowered to achieve their God-given goals and dreams. So it broadens not just only in terms of wealth, but in terms of education, health, that God is able to bring healing, that God is able to bring deliverance. So in that sense, it's conceived as holistic gospel rather than just one that just touches on our spirit and that's it. Prosperity gospel at times seems to be broader than just that. Yes, so let's turn to this concept of reverse mission, which is the focus of the second chapter of your book. Now, this, again, sounds like it should be something that's pretty much immediately understandable. Yes, you know, people from areas of the world that were once evangelized by missionaries from, in this case, the UK, uh, now sending missionaries back to the UK to spread the gospel here. Full stop, that's it. But it's not actually quite as simple as that either, is it? Now, it's another area that needs clarity. I must first of all start by saying that not every African pastor or scholar likes the term reverse mission. Some people don't like the term because they think it sounds colonial. Mm. It sounds like you're saying European missions were forced before African missions, which some people would disagree with. If you look at the history of missions from the first century after Jesus, the African church was clearly in the lead even before Europe became Christian. So, so there's, a lot of, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of things to think about. But the term reverse mission is looking at modern missionary concepts. So where we start from sort of 18th century when European missions went to Africa and in other parts of the world. And reverse mission is simply saying that some of the fruits of that mission is what we are now seeing. People coming back, they are coming back is very different from the way people went. Uh, so when people went to Africa from Europe, should I say they were working with empire, with colonialism, uh, there was slavery in the mix of that. Those of us coming back are not coming back from a particular empire. In fact, people are coming back as what we be called economic migrants. But they come with their faith. And uh, they see a lot of need here. They say that people are not maybe taking their faith seriously or that the numbers in, you have in churches, considering Nigeria where small churches would be 500 in attendance. And then you come to UK, people say, oh, what do you have in your church? I have about 100, 150 people. And people are very excited about that. Oh, okay, really. <laughs> like I said, to sort of come and find that it's more of a, you might say, a sociologically Christian country rather than um, a theologically Christian country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people began to understand the shift and they began to see the need for missionary work. So people are coming as political migrants, asylum seekers, economic migrants. But in that, there are missionary migrants. There is a connection between migration and mission, which is what I think reverse mission is saying. Even when you look at it biblically, Abraham was a missionary migrant. He migrated from what would be Iraq today to a new place, which we now call Palestine or Israel. And within that, he had God's call. Even Jesus can be referred to, the incarnation can be referred to as a migration, depending on how you see it. The Bible says Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Mm. And the whole language you have in the New Testament is that of a migrant, mm-hmm. we are called aliens by some text. We are temporary residents on it because heaven is our home. So all Christians are migrants. So reverse mission is taking that understanding and saying, whereas mission used to be from the West to the rest, it is now from 
anywhere to everywhere. Mm. Yes, I like that. Yes, anyone, anywhere mm. can do mission. That's mm. the implication of Missio Day, God's mission. Yes, just as God can call English gentlemen and women, so is God calling Asians. Africans, Latin Americans, Caribbean, mm. to serve in mission. And going back to the black majority churches, you talk about this idea of holistic mission, and you say that the black majority churches have been very good, by and large, at evangelism, but they've been less good at conceiving of mission in broader terms. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yes, um, the historical roots of black majority churches and their understanding of mission was the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Within that, there was a strong emphasis on evangelism. It was possibly until later that the idea of community engagement began to develop within these churches. And also, the times when the church is engaged in holistic mission or going beyond just evangelism, it was mainly catering for the needs of their own people, needs which were not met elsewhere. So, in the 60s, there was a Pentecostal credit union started by Caribbean Pentecostal churches. Hmm. Uh, that was because a lot of their members were struggling financially. And so the Pentecostal credit union was started to help members. That was an initiative that was trying to go beyond just evangelizing, but to help people's socioeconomic needs. But obviously, because it was limited within the African and Caribbean community, that was not maybe reaching beyond that scope. But I think one thing that African and Caribbean churches do well is evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel, which I think at times the flip side of that is that somehow we can reduce the gospel to a philanthropic social gospel so that all we just do is um, Mm. do good things in the community. We don't necessarily have to share the gospel. And I think African and Caribbean churches differ on that point. Uh, Yes, now they want to do good things, but they also want to share the gospel because they see it as an imperative. So that's something that they do very well, which I think other churches need to learn from that. Absolutely. And I do find that kind of attitude, well, really in the church that we attend, or we, actually we attend more than one church, but uh, one that I have in mind particularly. And yes, there is this sort of notion that if you do good in the community generally, that people will see you as a Christian and, that, and you will somehow by your very actions be speaking the gospel without actually talking about Jesus. And, and I do think that's mistaken really, because unless there's a context in which people can understand your actions, they're not going to understand that you're trying to show forth the gospel. Yeah. Why should they? They'll just think, oh, yeah, you're a really nice person. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, you're a nice person, so what? You know? um, so you do need that context. So you would say then that the black majority churches would be well-placed in their community work to give a very clear yeah. context of the gospel. Yes, the things that they do, they do a lot of social action now, but it's grounded still in sharing the gospel. They have boldness mm-hmm. <laughs> and confidence too share the gospel. They are not apologetic no, by no. sharing the gospel. No. Uh, we should certainly learn from that, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to say even evangelical churches should learn that because we yeah. can be quite closed about these things and uh, we, we should be bold about the gospel because there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, indeed, as Paul said himself. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was interested in but also slightly concerned about and you do talk about how black majority churches don't seem to have their own theologians very much there are some notable people who you you mentioned particularly you mentioned dr robert beckford and i'll come back to him in a moment and you say really that the black majority churches do need to cultivate academic theologians more why do you think that's important I think it is important because of the context that we are in. When you look at Western society, it's premised on the Enlightenment concept. And the ideals of the Enlightenment is that we rationalize. Western culture is premised on thinking, it's premised on evidence, it's premised on arguing. And I'm saying that if African and Caribbean churches are going to be more effective, then we need to find theological tools to engage in those kind of conversations. Yeah, it's good to believe that God can do miracles, God can heal, that's fantastic. That's going to touch on a lot of hearts. But we need to find ways of articulating what we believe, understanding what we believe, so that we don't just have hand-me-down traditions that we are not questioning. So basically, we need to develop a consciousness where we can critique certain things that are assumed in terms of maybe doctrines or practices 
so that in the light of scripture, obviously, so that um, we can be more effective to engage in a postmodern society. Yes. I think it's important to have homegrown theologians because I think for far too long in this country, history and theology of black majority churches were falsely written by Western white scholars. It was until later that you begin to have people from within these churches writing about their own history and mission and theology. And so it's important to articulate ourselves what we know about our churches. So, for example, when we talk about history, you know, that's a huge area. A lot of black majority churches don't even know their history. And, and so if we don't have theologians who can articulate and put these things out there, then I think we might have a generation who might not understand their roots and identity. And I think it's important. Yes, I do see that. And I see the importance of being able to as you say, articulate what you believe in a context which is very much informed by Enlightenment ideals and now postmodern ways of thinking. And I, I do see this is important for people to be able to do that. And I'm very glad that you say that in that effort, one should be grounded in Scripture. Very pleased to hear you say that. But there is a danger, is there not, here? Given that many universities, especially here in the UK, are dominated by what we might call liberal theology i mean not not in every case but you know there there is a you know there is a lot of that around as one might say might it not be that the desire to develop highly credentialed academics from prestigious institutions etc actually lead to a gradual watering down of the gospel i think um this is where it's important to ground it in scripture so i think it's important that people that we are might be identifying as our theologians that is why it's important to be part of the church, to be grounded. I mean, before I went to study theology at university, I was grounded in church. I knew what I believed, no matter what is thrown at me in the classroom. Uh, well, uh, you say that, but then again, there are people who will say that their experiences of being it depends what you mean by grounded. Um, they're very much enculturated in their home church and they go off to university and they find that what they've been taught in their home church has not prepared them apologetically to cope and so they then lose their faith at university. Um, if we're going to avoid that, that presupposes that there's got to be very good teaching in the home churches yeah. as well. But that teaching has got to be scripturally based. It's got to be very sound. And therefore, yeah. you need people who can teach with educated tools, but nevertheless, from that scriptural basis. But h- how do you ensure that if the very people who are who yeah. are saying, you know, we need people who are highly credentialed, if, if they are going to be taught at liberal establishments? That's a, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? It is. And I suppose it depends on, again, how we say theology. I understand that there is academic theology with high PhDs and things like that. The other aspect of theology is where the congregation is well equipped in terms of good teaching from scripture, engaging with culture. And for that to happen, you will need sound leaders Mm. who have gone on a journey of being educated. Education is not just only when you go to classrooms. And I think we must not make the mistake to think theology can only be learned in universities. No, 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 I take that point. But should you not be careful where you send people? I mean, that's quite blunt, but I'm, I'm wondering about that because, you know, there can be tremendous differences between theological courses in different establishments, almost as if it's a different worldview altogether. Some people will teach in theological contexts, and I know this from my own experience, some people will teach that there is yeah. basically no truth, there are yeah. hyper-postmoderns, yeah. and then there will be others who will be doing their, their most to defend the authority of Scripture with Within a very strict academic context, should we not be careful where we are sending yeah. these people who will be the movers and shakers of the future? I think, yeah, that's true. I think that's why there are many African and Caribbean churches that have set up their own Bible colleges. Uh-huh. There's been a development since the, the 90s or even before that. So many African and Caribbean churches, the denominational ones, they have their own Bible colleges. And so there is that option something that is still connected to the church as well as maybe affiliated, loosely affiliated to maybe a secular institution. Mm. And so there are Bible colleges like that, Mm. you know, within the Baptist we have that as well. 
just that Anglican have theirs as well. Could that not do the job? Yes, I mean, that could. Why, why could it not be the case that those particular institutions could be developed more and more? They may not have the prestige of other places like Oxford and Cambridge and, and Durham and Birmingham or whatever, um, but although they wouldn't have the prestige, yeah. there's no reason in principle why you know, jolly good higher education could not be had in those institutions. And if that's the case, should we even be concerned? Should you even be concerned about the notion of prestige of going to well-established places if you know that people are going to, by and large, receive an education that is going to be damaging to the gospel? I think there are two reasons here. One, yes, there is a place for Bible colleges and seminaries mm. where ministers and other people can be trained. Um, part of the reason that I think there is still maybe a need for maybe African and Caribbean folk to do theology in a other institutions that I said something earlier when the the first set of people that started writing about black majority churches were white scholars. And that was because there were no African and Caribbeans immediately doing that. That has been redressed now. I think if we don't have people to begin to occupy some of those spaces, I think we could be easily misunderstood, uh, misrepresented in some extent, because basically you have other people writing our history for us, other people theologizing for us, other people think they know us when actually they don't. And I think within the Western context, the way theology is still understood to some extent, which I don't totally agree with, but the way it's still understood is that uh, you have academic degrees uh, up to PhD and things like that. I don't necessarily agree with that concept myself. But within that framework, we need a representation of African and Caribbean and other scholars so that if we're talking about global theology or world Christianity, it is important to have voices from these churches represented there. Because what you have at the end of the day is that those kind of um, theological enterprise, when they begin to operate in higher agencies, ecumenical agencies or other forms of agencies, what you have is only white scholars. And I always ask the question, so where are the African and Caribbean scholars? Where is the Latin scholars? It's all just white scholars. And if we're going to redress that, there is still the need. <laughs> but some of that happens, so we need both. I can see that from a point of view of, of sheer representation. I can see that there would be a, a natural desire for that to be better represented. But from a gospel point of view, I'm not sure that I see the point. Um, if there is a risk, and I think it is a considerable risk, in being assimilated to the general university culture, that you know, you're going to lose some of your distinctiveness and ability to share the gospel. I mean, I come back to Robert Beckford. You mentioned him a couple of times, and you say at one point that he's the leading black theologian in this country, and that may indeed be true in that he may well be regarded as such by other theologians. But I watched his documentary, Who Wrote the Bible, several years ago, and I have to say I did think to myself, well, who is this chap? It was unnecessarily sceptical. There were quite a lot of academic resources that he could have drawn upon in order to make that documentary different, but it came over as far more sceptical than I think it need have been. And I think, will have been detrimental to people's faith. And yet, he is a leading black theologian in Britain. And my attitude to that is, well, I mean, I don't know what else he's written. That, that's all I, I know of him. But if that's indicative of his work, my attitude will be, well, so what? Okay, he's prestigious, but so what? Is that something that you should wish to emulate and have more people like that? What would that do? It, it might mean that you'd have a better status within the establishment, but as far as sharing the gospel is concerned, I don't think that will be very helpful. That's just the way you know, I look at it. Yeah, okay. Um, I understand what you mean. I think, again, we have to understand within the African and Caribbean churches and community, there are evangelicals and there are ecumenicals. And just as you will find within the white church as well, that there are evangelicals and there are those that would be called liberals. Those that are evangelical are prepared to go to a certain extent. Those that are ecumenical perhaps maybe go beyond that mode. Mm. Uh, someone like Robert Beckford would probably be seen as someone within the ecumenical stream who is willing to go beyond what, what is known. But I know Robert personally, and I know he has a faith in Jesus. 
we've worked together, we've spoken together, we've shared platforms together. I know where it's coming from and I know what he's trying to address. I suppose part of the history that we have is that we have come a long way from a place where, if I may put it bluntly... Do, please do. (laughs) (laughs) African and Caribbean were regarded as people who have no intellect. If you think of the pseudosciences that dominated the Enlightenment uh, and the constructs that were created, we've come a long way from being seen as less human, inferior, you know, and terms like that, terms that I cannot even mention on this program. Um, So there's always been that question whether African and Caribbean people can engage at an intellectual level. I I see that, and I can see then why you would wish to put that right or begin to put that right. Uh, Yes, I can see that. However... I'm only going by what you put in the book, and I do yeah. think it was a shame that you didn't flag up a note of warning about this, in that sure, in sure. trying to achieve this, surely it would be a really discerning thing to do, to make sure that you are encouraging people to follow theological training which is biblically sound. I mean, that could be something that you do within within the culture. Say, we, we are encouraging people to study higher theology, but be very careful where you go, because there are certain places where they will tear your faith down. A place that actually looks at the full spectrum of theology and biblical studies yeah. will be a much better grounding than going to some place which will be intent upon tearing your faith down in an unfair way. So, you know, I just think it would have been good to have put that in the book. That's what I'm thinking. Yes, um... Personally, I, I like to encourage both those to study within Bible colleges and maybe a few others for some of those historic reasons that I think it's still important to have a voice in terms of places where it appears as if we don't have a voice and that it is important to have both. Um, this brings us then really quite neatly into the last part of your book, which is to do with the transformation of society. And, and again, it's, it, <laughs> you talk about having a, a kingdom theology that is broader than just preaching the gospel and broader than just doing good in the community. But you feel that it's important to engage as widely as possible with society, even on in, the level of institutions, in furthering the kingdom of yeah. God. Now, on one hand, I can see some wisdom with this and then on the other hand I can see there are some grave dangers with this so we'll get into this. Um, Can you describe from your own point of view why you see it is important that the black majority churches should be involved in transforming society? I think the reason why it is important is because when you look at some of the issues that we face at this particular time they are issues that concern African and Caribbean communities. Mm. If I may take one, we talk about immigration. Now, the language of immigration and refugee that we have at the moment is very, very poor. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes. And I know it's a hot topic, and I'm aware of the nuances of it. But it really breaks my heart the way migrants, refugees, asylum seekers are demonized to some extent by the media. And I've seen the way this affects people particularly African and Caribbean communities, because if you think what we talked about earlier, the migration of Caribbeans in the 40s and the way they were rejected by society, I feel we are having similar patterns going on again. Now, those are structural issues. You know, they are systemic. And I'm saying, if this is going to change, yes, we can do provision of social services, migration centers, English classes to help migrants to speak English at lower level. But What about at structural levels? How can we begin to talk about policies? How can we begin to have a voice to contribute in those kind of debates and conversation? And I'm saying for that to happen, we have to go beyond just provision of social services. Because if we don't, I'm afraid a lot of things will not change. Mm. That's sort of where I'm coming from. I think it's important to engage structures and systemic issues. Yeah, I think I can see where you're coming from, and I can see the importance of wanting to engage. My question is the nature of the engagement. Let me, let me try to explain what I mean. Um, you list many areas in which black majority churches should engage, and you, you, you say church, community, policing, justice, yeah. prisons, mental health, voting, politics, family, marriage, youth, education, media, arts, aid, and development. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. That makes a lot of sense. However... 
What concerns me is that the assimilation of the black majority churches to the establishment and its institutions may be problematic in that the establishment is becoming increasingly non-Christian and it's becoming increasingly Mm anti-Christian. And you say, let me quote from you, it is not enough to have members of parliament, politicians and people of power as friends and to shy away from raising justice issues with them. We must endeavour to speak truth to power, even if it will mean we risk losing some friendships. Yeah. Now, yes, I agree. But how can you speak truth to power if you are increasingly enmeshed with the establishment? Does it not become increasingly difficult to do that precisely because people will not want to lose those friendships and particularly will not want to lose that influence that you are speaking of? I think there are two things to this. Let's take an example from scripture. Let's just look at Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah was at the forefront speaking truth to power. He was able to challenge Ahab. Mm. Your family has been a trouble to Israel. He spoke truth to power say the way it is. But then when you look at Obadiah, on the other hand, he was working within the palace. He was not able to speak directly as maybe Elijah did. What he was able to do was to hide some of the prophets of God that were in danger. And so what I'm simply saying is, we need those who will be speaking, but at the same time, there might be need for those who might be inside, who might be able to do something more pragmatic in a different way. Uh, There's no one approach to this. There are multiples of approaches to it. Uh, let me take another example. The prison system is full of a lot of African and Caribbean young people, young men. Now, there are churches that go in to preach, to share, to encourage. But in the long term, we can't just be going in to share the good news in prison. At some point, we will have to think, why is it that we have so many African and Caribbean young men in prison? Sure. Someone has to ask that difficult question. Mm. And then we will have to think about maybe working with the police or challenging the police. And so I think there are multiple approaches. I'm not seeing a state where we get meshed up and get blended in. That's not the kind of thing that I'm seeing. You know, currently I'm involved with some metropolitan police projects in London, bringing together again different church leaders and representatives from the African and Caribbean. And I remember one of our meetings, we have made it clear where we are coming from. You know, not minding whether what we say, whether the police wanted to hear it or not. We're making it very clear that what kind of partnership are we talking about here? That's why I think it's important to state what kind of partnership we're talking about. This is not a partnership just to pat the back. (laughs) This is a partnership to effect something. And I think that is important. I'm aware that not everyone might be able to do that. Um, I want to lose their privileged position and friendship, but there will be some who will want to be like Jesus and speak, or like John the Baptist, challenge the heralds of the day, or like Elijah to challenge the heralds of the day. Sure. You are aware of the dangers, as you say, of, of being enmeshed and that persuading some people to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> so as long as you are aware of that danger. Um, oh, yes, I am. Yes, sure. I, Okay, well, that brings us on to the the final issue, which is to do with ecumenism. And um, I really do see the value of working collaboratively. I can never say that word. <laughs> collaboratively. Got it right. Uh, with other churches. Um, uh, but I do see also that there are dangers with ecumenism, particularly on the higher levels. I mean, you talk quite a bit about institutional ecumenism. So this is not just different churches, say, at the local level working together in various ways. It's it's high-level meetings with leaders of the historic churches uh, to bring about some kind of organic unity on the level of institutions. Isn't there a danger that that will lead to a flattening out of differences between the churches? And might that not result in playing down the importance of teaching, of doctrine in in the church? Yes, I think it's important to mention that the kind of unity of partnership I'm talking about is not uniformity. If we take the prayers of Jesus in John 17, which is a classic text, we are not talking of uniformity where we all conform to one doctrinal practice. I think the kind of unity I'm talking about is the one that understands our differences, but at the same time, still seeking within that to work together. So I'm talking of unity in diversity here, and that is different from maybe an organized unity. Uh, in fact, I think organized unity is dying out uh, because it's seen as an old model of operating. Uh, what we have operating now is spirit-led ecumenism, where God's spirit is breaking out. 
and bringing different church leaders and different organizations to work together, not blending in their distinctions or saying, okay, this is who we are. You either accept it or not. I was involved in one of the ecumenical dialogue between Pentecostals and Anglican Church. And I was so glad to hear it in the room that the Pentecostals there were saying to the Anglicans, just because you talk about faith and order doesn't mean that we share your opinion on that. Actually, we don't. We disagree with you on that point because we don't see faith and order because we are Pentecostals. The Spirit can break out. So what do you mean by order? What do you mean? Clarify yourself. <laughs> and the Anglicans in the room had to clarify what they mean by that. And uh, the Pentecostals said, okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying. We still don't agree with you. But we can work together for sure. the sake of God's kingdom. But we don't necessarily agree with you. Yes, That's the kind of unity I'm talking about. Sure, that makes sense. Um, I mean, certainly if we're talking about secondary matters, like you just said, um, matters of order, I mean, or even things like baptism, whether you should do infant baptism or you should do adult baptism or different theories about bread and wine or whatever it might be, these things are, I would say, of secondary order. But what about fundamental things like the historic reality of the resurrection or the reality of Jesus' atonement that he died for our sins? I mean, you say that we should, I'm going to quote from you here, that we, we should have an awareness and respect of other theologies and doctrines, even if we do not agree with them. Well, okay, so long as that's secondary matters, Absolutely. But how can I, for example, respect a theology that denies that Christ rose from the dead or that Jesus died for my sins? And yet there are churches out there that teach that kind of thing. Surely in that case, I shouldn't respect that theology. There's a lot of black majority judges that will not engage because of those things that you have mentioned. It's fair to say majority of African and Caribbean judges in this country are theologically conservative. And as a result of that, they probably would not want to work together. <laughs> you know, that's the reality. But that would be right, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. They would be right in making yeah, that yes. decision. Yes, based on mm. that conviction, mm. yes. And yet when I read your book, I didn't get that sense. I got more of a neutral sense. It is the case that there are some more conservative churches that don't want to be involved for primary doctrinal reasons. But I got no sense from your book that that was a good thing to do. In fact, I got more of a sense that that was perhaps not the way to be because of these quotations that you then go on, advice that you give to people for ecumenism. As I said, aware and respect of other theologies and doctrines, even if you do not agree with them. Um, also, building relationships first before questioning doctrines or theology. You know, that sounds nice. We must build relationships first. And then we must question doctrines and theology. But that's dangerous as well, isn't it? Because once you start cooperating with people with view to a spiritual cooperation, and yet you're not talking theology, is there not a danger then that you will never talk theology because you, you won't want to upset each other? You're already you're, you're working together. And yet you may actually believe radically different things, let's say, about the atonement. Yeah. What I was trying to tease out was some of the things I've seen in terms of... Um, some white majority churches not wanting to work with black majority churches because of the assumption that they have about black majority churches. And some of those assumptions range from, oh yeah, they preach prosperity gospel to not sure whether they are Christians or, or vice versa. Hmm. That was sort of what I was trying to tease out there because um, oftentimes people have asked me, oh, there's this church that wants to use our building, but we're not sure about them. Can you check them out for us? They're very suspicious. And so what I was challenging there is the stereotype, because maybe you've seen one African preacher, all African preachers do preach this. That, that's what I was trying to tease out. I, I see that, and I, I think that, that's good advice. Yes, yes. You know, I'll tell you, mm. uh, there was this right. church, an African-Caribbean church, who wanted to use an historic church building. This was a phone conversation, and the pastor of the historic church was going to let them use their building. And then he kind of asked that, oh, are you a black majority church? And the guy said, yes, we are. And then that was the end of that conversation. Right. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's things like that. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yes, uh, well, I, I understand that. Yes, and indeed, it would be good for people not to think in those sort of knee-jerk yeah. ways. Absolutely, I do agree with you. However, I do think it would have been a good idea to make that more clear in the book, because particularly the uh, the menu of advice you have for ecumenical relations, I do think that could easily be read as we mustn't talk about anything that divides us. We must work on our relationship in the spirit, as you said, but not Here's one. Spend time talking about what we agree on 
rather than frowning on the differences. <laughs> but if those differences are very, very important, then we ought to spend time talking about them. Yes. Um, and so I just wish that you had brought that out more in the text, because I do think that could very easily be misunderstood. If you are actually talking about these matters of cultural difference and these matters of secondary uh, teaching importance, then I agree with you. But if you are including in that even major doctrinal elements and saying well we mustn't talk about that we must have unity even if we have radically different ideas about major doctrine then i i have to say that i do disagree with you yeah i think because i'm looking at black majority churches and historic churches my focus on the cultural assumptions and practices and the way i've seen a lot of black majority being treated yeah. when it comes to working together assumptions people have about them if you see some of the examples I gave there in terms of theological and doctrinal differences, you will see what I'm trying to do. Just, for example, maybe the way people dress to church on a Sunday. So I was looking more into those cultural, theological yes. things. Okay, I, I do understand. Um, but I just do think that we are living in days where you need to make that absolutely clear that that is what you're talking about, because we are so saturated by a sort of postmodern way of thinking that mm -hmm. I think mm. anything that's not clear, people will think, oh, yes, of course, we must never offend each other. We must just work together, whatever we believe. It does, what we believe doesn't really matter. And I just, just think we are living in days now where we need to make it quite clear that, no, we're not approving of that. Teaching does matter, and the historic truths of yeah. the gospel cannot be compromised upon. And so I, I'm glad to hear that, in fact, you, you do think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that really is, well, obviously there's more in your book, but that's essentially the overview of your book, which I did find interesting and provocative. You can see that it was provocative. Listeners can hear that it was provocative. Um, so if you want to get a copy of this... Um, I'm glad it's done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to read things, isn't it, sometimes that do actually make you think, good heavens, what's being said here? I need to speak to this person to clarify what's going on here. And uh, so I've very much enjoyed it from that point of view, indeed. Looking into an area, of course, that you know I have no familiarity with, and that, that is very interesting. If people want to get a copy of this really very small book, you know, it's just over a hundred pages. Uh, it's, it's a quick read through, but very interesting. Then, what's the best way to get hold of it? Is it through Instant Apostle? No, it's available on major Christian websites, so like Eden.co.uk, Amazon.co.uk, and then CLC Bookshops, Eden.co.uk. Bookshops or mm -hmm. And if people want to come to your church website to find out what you're doing these days, um, could you give the address of that website? Yeah, Centre for Missionaries from the Majority World. I can't remember the web address now, but I know it's um, mm -hmm. .co.uk. We do a lot of intercultural training, uh, helping pastors and missionaries who are coming in to understand the context there so people can find us on the center website excellent and of course i will put those links in the show notes to your church and also to your books so that people can find that information very easily and so finally let me say reverend israel Ulawala olifinjana and i'm quite sure i've mispronounced that <laughs> i'll invite you to uh, correct me again in a moment thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us on the show and go on tell us how you pronounce your name properly again yeah israel Ulawala olifinjana wonderful and uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk about the book. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Pleasure. I hope I didn't give you too hard a time there. No, no. I've done things like this before, so it's fine. Oh, good. good. <laughs> uh, I get quizzed a lot about this thing, so that's fine. Wonderful. Good. <laughs> You're an old hand. I thought you might be. <laughs> Great. <laughs> fine. Thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. Yeah, thanks, Julian. I appreciate that. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.